Chapter 11. The morning was budding and I was waiting for warmth. Down the street, a lanky boy was lingering near a stop sign. Head down, he was hunched over like a wind-blown weed. In his right hand was something shiny, a tool, maybe, or a pen. He was smiling just a bit as if he told himself a joke, a joke only he perhaps understood. All day long, I see people lost in thought, talking to themselves, grinning, frowning. He was nothing out of the ordinary. I was in the midst of a conversation with Bongo, who had just pointed out to me that I was a year older, 216 rings old, to be precise. Another sprout day, I said. I still feel like a sapling. You don't look a day over 150. Banco replied. Best looking tree on the block. I'm really, I paused for comic effect, getting up there. Banco, who was perched on my lowest branch, sighed. A crow sigh is unmistakable, like a groan from a tiny, cranky old man. Tree humor, I explained, just in case Bongo had missed it, although, of course, he hadn't. Bongo misses nothing. Because you know I'm so tall. Really, Red? Bongo stretched, admiring her lustrous blue-black wings. That's the best you got for me this morning? Maybe you'd appreciate my joke more if you weren't so sensitive about your stature, I teased. Corvids don't give a flying tail feather about height, Bongo said. Smarts, wiles, trickery, cunning. That's what counts in our neck of the woods. Corvids is a fancy name for birds like crows, ravens, jays, and magpies. Banco says she's too classy for a label as common as crow. A soft wind tickled my branches. Spring, that old rascal, was teasing us with the promise of warmer days. The truth is, I said, it doesn't matter what size you are, Banco. We grow as we must grow as our seeds decided long ago. Red, way too early in the morning for the wise old tree routine. Bongo gave me a gentle peck. Although you're right, it doesn't matter how tall you are. In a fluttery blur, she sailed to a telephone pole far above my leafy canopy. Not when you can fly, pal. At almost the same moment, Samar and the boy who lived in the greenhouse, Stefan, stepped onto their porches. Both had backpacks. Both looked eager to greet the day. Their eyes met. Stefan nodded, just a flicker, and Samar nodded back. Not a hello exactly, just an acknowledgement. Stefan ran off toward the elementary school down the street, but Samar hesitated. Hello, she called softly. Right on cue, Bongo replied, hello as she did every morning, sounding just like Samar. Bongo can also do a passable tuba, an impressive chihuahua, and a fine police siren. Samar looked up at Bongo, grinned, and headed toward school. With that, Bongo let loose a hoarse and gleeful caw and set off to wait for children to arrive at school. She was a regular there. Everybody knew her. She annoyed the children as much as they enjoyed her and they often enjoyed letting her annoy them. 
Bongo especially liked to untie shoelaces. While the children were busy retying them, she would snatch treats from their lunch bags. Every now and then, she would even make a polite request. She could say, chip please, no way, and you rock when it served her purposes. Watching Bongo soar, I considered not for the first time my rambling roots. What would it be like to fly, to burrow, to swim, to gallop? Delightful, no doubt, sheer joy, and yet I wouldn't trade a single rootlet for any of it. It is a great gift indeed to love who you are. Chapter 12. By this time, the lanky boy had walked past me, swiveled, and returned. Glancing over his shoulder, he stepped onto the brown lawn that blanketed my roots. The air changed, quivering the way it will when people are near, with chemicals, with pulsing heat, with humanness. And then it happened. He dug into my trunk with the object in his hand, fast, deliberate. Again, he checked his surroundings. An elderly woman crossing the street smiled at him and shook her head. She was probably thinking, how sweet. I'll bet he's carving a heart with initials in it. Oh, to be young and in love. People are under the impression that trees don't mind being carved into, especially if hearts are involved. For the record, we mind. I'd never seen the boy before. He was big, maybe a high schooler. It's hard to know with people. With a tree, I can sense to the month, sometimes to the day. It's age. I could tell what he was carving, of course, but I could tell from the determined way he moved that it was meant to hurt. Not me. Somehow I sensed it wasn't meant to hurt me. I was just his canvas. That said, it's not exactly a picnic getting hacked into. Bark is my skin, my protection from the world. Any wound makes it harder to fight off disease and insects. I wanted to yell, stop, to say something, anything. But of course I didn't. It's not our way. Trees are meant to listen, to observe, to endure. He was done quickly. He stood back, admired his work, gave a little nod and left. As he walked away, I saw the tool clutched in his fist a little screwdriver with a yellow handle, thin as a twig, bright as a metal arc. Chapter 13. Bongo was the first to see what had happened to me. She landed at the base of my trunk, head cocked. Dropping the potato chip in her beak, she cried, I leave you alone for a few minutes and look what happens, what on earth? It seems someone mistook me for a pumpkin, I said. When she didn't smile, I added, because you know I was carved. For the millionth time, Red, explaining doesn't make things any funnier. Bongo flew to my lowest scaffold branch, one of my big primary limbs. She examined my injury. Does it hurt? Not the way an injury might hurt you. Trees are different that way. 
I've got to do something, Banco said. There's nothing to be done. You've got a major boo-boo. I want to help. You're the wise old tree. Tell me what to do. Really, Banco, time heals all wounds. Banco hates it when I philosophize. She rolled her eyes. At least I think she did. It's hard to tell with crows. Their eyes are like morning blackberries, dark and dewy. I just hope my bark isn't ruined, I said. That's my favorite side. It's not ruined, just decorated, like those tattoos people get. Bongo nudged me with her beak. Show me who did this. I'll get him. I'll squawk at his window in the middle of the night. I'll dive bomb him and yank out some hair. She flapped her wings. No, better yet, I'll make a deposit on his head. I'll make a deposit on his head every day for a year. I didn't ask what kind of deposit. I was quite sure I knew. Bongo, dear, I said. That won't be necessary. Bongo shifted from foot to foot, something she did when she was working out a problem. You know, she said, it's almost time for wishing day. Maybe this is some kind of wish, just a poorly delivered one. Another wishing day, I repeated. It seemed like we'd just had one. Had a whole year already come and gone? Days have a way of slipping past like raindrops in a river. One more round, Bongo said, of greedy people bugging you with their needs. One more round of hopeful people wishing for better things, I corrected. Wishing day was always a bit hard on me and on my residents. Usually the animals and birds stayed away that day to avoid curious hands and endless photographs. But it was just one day. I understood its history and my role in it. I knew people were full of longings. A mother tugging a toddler along the sidewalk froze in place when she saw my trunk. Mommy, what does that say? Asked her little girl who was clutching a stuffed talk toy dog by his bedraggled tail. The mummy didn't answer. Mommy! They crossed the lawn. The mother stepped close to me. It says, leave, she finally said. Like trees have leaves? Gently, the mother traced my cuts with her index finger. Maybe, she answered, maybe like that. She looked over at the two houses near me, shaking her head. She tightened her grip on the little girl's hand. Let's hope that's all it means. Chapter 14. Those houses, my houses, one painted blue, one painted green, one with a black door, one with a brown door, one with a yellow mailbox, one with a red mailbox. For well over a century, I'd stared at them, prim and proper, same small size, same boxy shape, same pitched roofs and squat brick chimneys. Architectural siblings. Long before they were a glimmer in some builder's eye, I was here, right in the middle of things. 
If my roots stretched past the property line that separated them, well, that's never been my concern. Roots can be unruly. Mine explored the earth below both houses, pirouetted around their plumbing and anchored their foundations. I spread my shade fairly. I dropped my leaves evenly. I bombed their roofs with acorns in equal number. I did not play favorites. Over the years, many families had called those houses home. Babies and teenagers, grandparents and great-grandparents. They spoke Chinese and Spanish, Yoruba and English and French Creole. They ate tamales and panipuri, dim sum and fufu and grilled cheese sandwiches. Different languages, different food, different customs. That's our neighborhood, wild and tangled and colorful, like the best kind of garden. A few months ago, a new family, Samar's family, rented the blue house. They were from a distant country. Their ways were unfamiliar. Their words held new music. Just another transplant in our messy garden, it seemed. Except that this time, something changed. The air was uneasy. The parents in the greenhouse refused to welcome the new family. There were polite nods between the adults at first, but then even those vanished. Other things happened. Someone threw raw eggs at the blue house. One afternoon, a car passed by filled with angry men yelling angry things. Things like, Muslims, get out. Sometimes Samara would walk home trailed by children taunting her. I love people dearly. And yet, 216 rings, and I still haven't figured them out. Our neighborhood had welcomed many families from far away. What was different this time? The headscarf Samar's mother wore? Or was it something else? As all this unfolded, busybody that I am, I kept tabs, eavesdropped, observed. I never interfered though. Trees are impartial observers. We are the strong and silent type. Besides, what could I possibly do? I had limbs, but they could merely sway. I had a trunk, but it was rooted to the earth. I had a voice, but it could not be used. My resources were limited. So too, as it turned out, was my patience. Chapter 15. When you're the neighborhood wish tree, people talk. It didn't take long for folks to learn about the ugly word carved into my trunk. People stopped to stare. They gathered in little groups. They grimaced and shook their heads and murmured. By lunchtime, the police had arrived. I am not, as it happens, a stranger to law enforcement. A pair of calico kittens reside across the street. They love climbing up my trunk to my uttermost branches. Unfortunately, they don't love climbing back down. 
In the last two months, Lewis and Clark have been rescued twice by the fire department and three times by the police. Sandy and Max, the same police officers who'd rescued the kittens just last week, climbed out of the patrol car to check me out. They frowned. They searched the lawn for clues. They talked to passersby and took photos. Bongo, I whispered. I'm an official crime scene. She was not amused. The owner of the houses, and therefore technically of me, was the one who called the police. Francesca, tall and thin with short, dove gray hair lived across the street. The blue and green houses had belonged to her family for generations. Francesca was also the owner of Lewis and Clark, my intrepid visitors. With a grim look on her face, Francesca strode across the street to talk to the police. Lewis and Clark squirmed in her arms. That tree, Francesca said to Sandy, who was taking notes on a little pad. It's been nothing but trouble for as long as I can remember. Francesca has never been the sentimental sort. She likes cats more than trees. To each her own, I happen to like trees more than cats. Oh, but people love the wish tree, said Sandy. She looked me up and down. Although I imagine it's a lot of work for you. Every year, the day after wishing day, I swear I'm going to cut that thing down, Francesca said. It was true, but I knew Francesca didn't mean it. She and I went way back. The cleanup is the worst of it, Francesco continued. The things people wish for, the craziness. Last year, someone wrote, I wish for chocolate spaghetti. In permanent marker, on a pair of underwear, tossed it way up high. Chocolate spaghetti, Sandy said. I could get behind that. Craziness, I tell you. Francesca stared at me. It's just a tree, after all, just a tree. Just a tree. Seemed a tad unfair, but Francesca looked tired and angry, so I tried not to take it personally. Sandy closed her notebook. People believe what they want to believe about trees. She stared at the newly carved word. About people, too. What now? Francesca asked. Dunno, Sandy said. The tree belongs to you, not the new family, and you've been here forever. Francesca smiled sadly. Suppose it could be me they're hoping will leave? They watched Max place a circle of yellow crime scene tape near my trunk using metal stakes. Don't think so, Francesca, Sandy said. Max joined them. He stroked the kittens who purred loudly. One problem in terms of prosecuting anyone, he said, is the history of this tree. It's almost May when people leave their wishes or whatever. Hard to say for sure this isn't part of the whole, you know, tradition thing, he shrugged. That's assuming we figure out who did this, mind you. People are supposed to make their wishes on a rag or a piece of paper, not carve it into the trunk, Francesca said. That's why back in Ireland, they called these raggy trees. Nowadays, a lot of people just tie a tag around a branch and write their nutty wishes, she shrugged. In any case, leave is not a wish. It's a threat. 
It certainly is, Max agreed. Francesca nodded at the cracked and buckled walkways leading to both houses. Tell you one thing, wish tree or not, this oak is destroying the walkways. Messing with the plumbing too, roots go on forever. She shook her head. Maybe it really is time to cut it down. No more leaves to rake, no more wishing day mess, no more of this unkindness. Louis leapt from Francesca's grasp and dashed for my trunk. Sandy tackled him just in time. We'll finish up our investigation in a day or two. Be out of your hair, Max said. Then you'll be free to do whatever you want with the tree. You know, Francesca said, taking Louis from Sandy. My father almost cut this tree down years ago. My mother wasn't having it. Family lore or some such thing, soft-hearted nonsense, she sighed. Guess it's up to me. Meantime, you keep us posted if anything else happens. Sandy advised. Francesca headed across the lawn, holding the kittens close. Leave, she murmured. What a world, what a world we live in. Chapter 16. When you're a tree, a phrase like cut it down is bound to get your attention. Francesca had hinted at such things before, but always in jest. After a long October afternoon raking my newly shed leaves into crisp hills, or after a particularly messy wishing day, or after stepping on my acorns and bare feet. I felt bad about the walkways. It's an occupational hazard. To stay alive, I need a vast network of roots, and roots can be surprisingly strong. Did you hear that? Baco asked watching Francesca enter her house. She sounded serious this time. I've heard it all before, I said. Unfortunately, the newbies heard it too, Bongo said. Bongo calls every fresh crop of babies newbies. She pretends to be annoyed by their antics, but I know better. Listen, Bongo urged. Sure enough, I could hear the baby skunks wailing from their hidden nest under the porch. But we love red, Mama, one of them cried. Hush, their mother, fresh-baked bread, scolded. It's the middle of the day. You're supposed to be asleep. Creatures like fireflies, bats, and deer are especially active at dusk and dawn. Will red be all right, Mama? Another baby whose voice I recognized as Rose Petal asked. All skunks name themselves after pleasant scents. I am not sure if this is because they're a bit defensive about their reputation or if they just have a sky sense of humor. Of course, said her mother. Red is indestructible. Bongo looked at me. See what I mean? Oh dear, I said. By tonight they'll all have heard. The possums, the raccoons, the owls, Little Harold will be beside himself. Harold was the smallest barn owl nestling and a great worrier. Barn owls give themselves sensible, no-fuss names. I'll talk to everyone, Bongo said. Calm them down, tell them not to worry. I'm sure things will be fine, I said. 
I've seen a lot in my years. The things I've fretted about that have never come to pass, I could write a book. I paused. In fact, I could be a book. I paused again. Because you know, paper is made of trees. Bongo gave a screechy crow laugh. She didn't even scold me for my lame joke. That's when I started to worry. Chapter 17. As much as I was concerned about the baby's reaction to Francesca's words, I was more worried about Samar. What would happen when she returned from school and saw the word carved into me? Would she think it was meant for her and for her family, as Francesca and the police seemed to assume? She came home alone, Ahead of her, by a few yards, was Stefan. A reporter from the neighborhood newspaper was waiting on the sidewalk, interviewing people as they walked by. Word travels fast in our parts, especially when there's yellow police tape involved. Had they seen what had happened? The reporter kept asking. Had they ever made wishes on wishing day? What did they think the word leave meant? The reporter approached Stefan. Did he know why someone would carve leave into the beloved local wish tree? Stefan stared at the reporter. Then he glanced behind at Samar, sending her the shadow of a sad smile. Without answering the reporter, he headed toward his house. Samar's eyes darted from Stefan to the reporter to me. She ran closer, saw the word, and gasped. She reached a hand toward me, but the police tape put me out of reach. Are you a resident? The reporter asked. Would you like to comment on the incident? Samar didn't say a word. She turned and walked up the sagging steps to the little blue house. Her head held high, standing tall, reaching deep. Chapter 18. Around six that evening, Sandy and Max returned. When the police knocked on the door of the greenhouse, Stefan's parents opened it and answered questions. They shook their heads, they shrugged, then they shut their door and closed the curtains. When the police knocked on the door of the blue house, Samar's parents opened it and answered. They answered questions. They rubbed their eyes. They sighed. Then they too shut their door and closed the curtains. As Sandy and Max headed back to their cruiser, Sandy paused beneath me. I wonder if we should make a wish, she said. Might be our last chance. I'll tell you what I wish for, Max said. I wish I didn't have to investigate things like this. Sandy patted his shoulder. I wouldn't hold my breath on that one. As for me, I spent the evening hours reassuring the parents and offspring who called me their home. They weren't just worried about 
where they would have to move, of course, they were worried about me. I was worried about me too. I didn't want to leave the world I loved so much. I wanted to meet next spring's owl nestlings. I wanted to praise the new maple sapling across the street when it blushed red at sunset. I wanted my roots to journey farther, my branches to reach higher. But that is how it is when you love life. And I could accept that if my time had come, it had come. After a life as fine as mine, who was I to complain? I was worried about the babies though, about their parents scrambling to find new safe places to line their nests, dig their burrows, hide their winter stashes of acorns. Most of all, I was worried about Samar. I don't know why. Perhaps it was because she reminded me so much of another little girl from another time long ago. A little girl I managed to shelter successfully. Francesca's great-grandmother. Like I said, we go way back. Chapter 19. Long after midnight, Samar came to visit me. She wore a blue robe. Her dark curly hair was pulled back in a loose ponytail. Her eyes held moonlight in them. She sat at the base of my trunk on her blanket. She didn't look at the carved word or the splinter of moon or the blue and green houses. She just sat quietly and waited. It always took a while, but it always happened. One by one, the babies ventured out to see her. Harold was first, flapping awkwardly down to the ground. The raccoon babies, you, you, and you were next. Raccoon mothers are notoriously forgetful, so they don't bother with traditional names. The possums, the skunks, they all came. Samar sat perfectly still. The babies circled her. Together they sat in the shimmer of moonlight and listened to my leaves rustle. Bongo settled on Samar's shoulder. Hello, she said in her crow version of Samar's voice. Hello. Samar said, echoing the echo. Bongo squawked and Samar jumped a bit. Even Bongo's quietest cause a bit on the harsh side. Bongo flew up to my smallest hollow and poked her head inside, her tail feathers still visible. With something shiny in her beak, she returned to the ground in front of Samar. Gently, she placed a tiny silver key attached to a long faded red ribbon in Samar's open hand. It's beautiful. Samar whispered, thank you. Bongo bent forward, wings spread in a sort of bow. It was in crow circles a sign of great affection. I'd seen that key before. Bongo had inherited it from her mother. Crows live in extended families and they pass information across generations. It didn't surprise me that Bongo still had the key or that she decided to give it to Samar. In the sweet calm surrounded by everything I loved, moonlight, air, grass, animals, earth, people, I wondered with a pain how much longer I would be able to savor such moments.
I wonder too, if I'd done enough for the world I loved. It was something I'd asked myself before, but impending death has a way of focusing your attention. Sure, I provided plenty of shade, made oceans of oxygen for people to breathe, been a home to an endless parade of animals and insects. I'd done my job. A tree is, after all, just a tree, like I told Bongo. We grow as we must grow as our seeds decided long ago. And yet, 216 rings, 864 seasons, and still something was missing. My life had been so safe. Upstairs, a curtain in the greenhouse moved. Behind it, Stephen was just visible, watching us. I knew what he was thinking. One of the advantages of being a good listener is that you learn a great deal about how the world works. In Stephen's eyes, in the way he looked at Samar that afternoon, I saw something I'd seen many times before, a wish.